This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Hello, everyone. I'm Clint Yates. Today on the iUniverse line, thank you for being with us today. Really excited about the book we get to talk about and some of the ideas we kind of get to delve into today as we talk about the new book, Up From the Crowd, Lessons to Help Managers Become Effective Leaders. Gosh, don't we all want to be that in our job, in our workplace, and in our families, and all these concepts can work almost anywhere. We're so fortunate today to have on the iUniverse line the author of this new book, William L. Mintz. Bill, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Gosh, these are all concepts I know that we can apply in all parts, all aspects of our lives. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself as we kind of delve into how you, how you came about uh, the idea of this book. So I came from a very poor family and was unable to put myself through college. I dropped out to go to work for a small company, um, driving a fork truck, um, and uh, went back to school at night. And that company was bought by a major company, 3M. And early on, I realized that if I were going to be a successful manager, I needed to go back to school. So I got both an undergraduate and a, and a master's degree while I was working for them, and then started to move up through the organization through a series of different companies. I found myself eventually as president and COO of a small public company. And along the way, there were a, I had a number of great mentors that helped me with that. And, and so this is sort of what inspired me to turn around and see, is there something that I could do to help other first-time managers that are, that are on that path? This is such a competitive kind of field, isn't it, uh, Bill? Especially besides just finding a job in today's um, economy to become a manager and then to be an effective manager. That's not an easy thing to do. No, and and it's not something instinctually that, that everybody has. And so I was uh, fortunate, as I said, to have some great mentors and coaches in my career, and they were instrumental in helping me grow from a manager to a leader uh, to a public company executive. And with this book, you know, I hope to provide inspiration to new managers to improve their skills and help them focus on the importance of people and separate themselves from their peers through above-average performance. Again, the name of the book we're talking about today is Up From the Crowd, Lessons to Help Managers Become Effective Leaders. Bill Mintz is on the iUniverse line. Uh, what is the biggest mistake uh, people begin to make as they try to make that transition from just being a manager uh, to being, as you, as you call it, an effective leader to being a, a, a real effective executive? Well, the biggest mistake is to assume that you're the most important person in the organization and that every decision that you make is, is more important than everybody else's. Uh, it's so critical to develop a team uh, of people around you that are even smarter than you are and learn how to let them blossom and basically create the environment, empower them, and allow them to grow. Uh, as they grow, they will push you up naturally. 
too many managers let their ego get in the way and think that they have to make every decision themselves, and they end up stifling all the creativity and energy uh, in the company. Yeah, kind of build your success on the success of others, I guess, so to speak. You bet. Uh, it's not easy. When you see people in charge, you've worked in a job, you've seen bosses. I, I think every employee somewhere deep down thinks that they can do a better job than their boss can. But once you get there, it's it's not a, an easy office to occupy, is it? Uh, no, no. And, and if you got there by stabbing people in the back and being dishonest, it's an even more difficult position to be in. Now, there's a couple of really key things uh, that we were talking about before we before we got started today. wanted to talk a, a little bit about that. And uh, first one that really comes to my mind, you were mentioning, is conflict resolution. That's not something, uh, again, as this whole process, it seems, as you mentioned, is not something natural to most people. No. Well, in every organization, um, and we just think back over the last 10 years, 15 years as technology has moved into all of the organizations uh, where, you know, in the old days we had the old sort of IBM, you know, 400-pound computers, and now, you know, people are walking around with uh, tablets and iPhones. And Well, change, change is imminent in every organization, and conflict resolution is a necessary skill for every manager. Out of all of that change that happens in the organization, whether it's an external influence or, a, or something happening inside because you're reacting to you know, a change in a regulatory issue, you have a number of conflicts that are going to come up because not every manager and employee is going to see the solution the same way. So having the ability to manage your way through that and having the managerial courage to stay the path through some of these tough situations is is a real important skill to master. Yeah, nobody likes change, do they? Uh, no. Especially employees really don't like change. Conflict resolution, if there's one key in there, Bill, that you could point out, I know you have a bunch in the book, but what's the biggest key to being a, an effective person that can help resolve conflict? Uh, first, you have to have personal integrity, and people need to understand that your most important motivation is the health and welfare of the organization first and not your functional discipline second. If you represent yourself as a leader that's focused on the whole organization, then when you're in the middle of a conflict, you're not going to have somebody misreading something thinking, that, oh, he, I know why he's doing that. It's because he'll get a bonus or he'll get a raise or he'll get a promotion. So you know, having that you know, integrity that says that you're focused on the health and welfare of the whole organization first, I think is a great foundation because you'll get the trust out of the people as you work them through some of these difficult situations. Now, on the flip side of that, we were talking earlier, not only do you have to be great at conflict resolution and, and embrace change, you've got to be able to push people as well. And Is there a fine line there between conflict resolution, helping your employees along, but still pushing them outside of their comfort zone, so to speak? Yeah, so first, I would never ask somebody to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. Given that I grew up you know, driving a fork truck and have worked my way up through the organization, I understand that there are jobs in the organization that are more difficult than others. But if the job is so disgusting that nobody should be doing it, you should engineer that out of the, out of the organization to start with. But assuming that you have now people who are motivated, want to help grow, the biggest thing is to help people understand where the company's going. 
And I think at the end of the day, all businesses focus on a customer, a customer resolution, the employees who have to support that, and then the organization that needs to work together behind that. So for me, it's trying to get everybody wrapped around the common vision and goal of where the company is headed. And I find that most people will rally around that, and they will get it. In some cases, they may just not want to be part of that vision, and it's time for them to, to leave the company and, and go somewhere else where they think the vision is more in line with what they want to do. Uh, some difficult uh, decisions to make there. Tell me a little bit, uh, Bill, for you, this is your first book. How difficult was it? Did you find it difficult, perhaps I should say, to sit down and put all this uh, experience down on paper in the form of a book? Well, it, Coincidentally, for the last 10 years, I had been working in a company that we grew from $27 million to $350 million through acquisition. And during that period of time, we did 15 acquisitions. And I was called upon as the lead executive to go in and do all of the integration of that new staff into the new company. And during that period of time, I found myself coaching and teaching and putting together charts and graphs and helping people understand many of the concepts that are in this book. And along the way, one of the general managers said to me, you know, you should write this stuff down. And so I actually started writing some of this stuff as a little essay to hand to people to say, look, if you want to know how to hire good people, here's a model that I found that works. Please read this. I'll be in town next week. Let's discuss it. So a lot of this came out of the work I was already doing and finding that it was effective helping people with the integration into the company. You said something interesting a while ago, Bill, about maybe as an employee uh, or as a manager, you see employees that just really can't wrap their arms or their head around uh, the mission of a company. Uh, How do you go about recognizing that a company is a good fit for you? It has to be a two-way street, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that, you know, I've always used um, sort of this meter uh, or metric to determine uh, sort of, I'll call it a value system within a company. As long as I'm not being asked to do something that is not illegal, immoral, unethical, and won't affect the long-term stability of the company, then what's left is just a question of, boy, should we sail to the left? Should we sail to the right? Should we, you know, what I would consider to be sort of minor issues. And so for me, I want to work with honest people that have a clear vision about what they're going to serve for people, uh, their customer. And as long as that's really clear, then I can get aligned with a lot of different kinds of companies and a lot of different, different products. So for me personally, as long as it's clear that what we're doing is focusing on a real problem for customers in the marketplace, and it's a type of job I like to do and work I like to do, I get aligned myself very quickly. Uh, I then want to make sure that everybody else in the organization understands what that is. Because with, with full transparency and the ability for them to challenge, you know, if we're sailing to the left and someone thinks we should steer to the right, I want to hear them out because they may see something that I don't see. And so even though the vision might be, have, have been laid down, we still want to be able to listen to people and correct it if needed. Listening to part of your story, Bill, is it important in today's uh, economy and in today's workplace to have an education, not only just to have to have a job, but to be a manage to even be a manager, much less a, an effective manager. Well, so for me, I, I was very fortunate in that I 
was now working, running a department with almost 200 people that I was 25 years old, and I had a three-shift operation when I decided to go back to school. I feel I got a great education in business because I was studying business classes at night and I had a, a real job during the day. And the same thing when I got my master's degree, uh, mostly in organizational behavior. I found that that combination of having a job and studying uh, management at the time I was also managing people was really helpful as opposed to some managers who um, either choose never to go to school, so they're just sort of trying to you know, figure this out on their own, or those that went through six to seven years of school, came out with an MBA, and have never really worked and managed before. So from that standpoint, I felt I sort of had the best of both worlds, uh, as, it, as it turned out. I got a really great education, and, and working for 3M, I had some great, great coaches and mentors during that time. You know, when I just see the cover of your book, Bill, you know, the title is Up From the Crowd. It's almost stand out from the crowd, at least, you know, you have the the little person there in the middle kind of standing out from the rest. Is that important today out there? It's such a competitive marketplace, especially for those uh, key executive jobs that you have to stand out. You have to raise up above the crowd to be noticed. Is that key? Yeah, and, and you know, I toyed with, with, you know, what's the right cover and how do I want to portray this message about being up from the crowd? And, and, and what I don't mean is stand up and say, me, 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 me. What I really mean is let your, let your performance do the talking. Learn how to be an effective leader. Learn how to have employees who get promoted around you and they get moved on. Uh, the most flattering thing you can have is people coming to your department and saying, boy, we'd like to interview you know, Susan because we need a new XCOM manager, whatever. Can we interview her? We'd like to promote her out of your department. And, and if you're willing to do that, pretty soon not only will your, your people be standing out from the crowd, but, but so will you. So it's, it's really about creating an environment where you and your team uh, just sort of quietly go about your business but continue to you know, hit and exceed you know, the expectations. Again, the name of the book that we're talking about today is Up From the Crowd, Lessons to Help Managers Become Effective Leaders. William L. Mintz, Bill Mintz is the author. He's on the iUniverse line with us. Bill, is there a target audience here that you had in mind when you put this book together, or is it just for anyone in the workplace? Who is this book for? And at the end of the day, when we've talked about so much, uh, what what can they be sure they're going to walk away with? So my target are those folks who are uh, wanting to become managers or who are new managers for the first time and struggling with that, you know, issue where they they have a department goal that they have to meet and they have maybe some employees in the group that are not motivated or don't understand what the mission is. I'm really trying to help those folks who for the first time find themselves in charge of a group of people never having led anybody before and maybe they you know they have a technical degree or the degree is in is in science or it's in something it's not in human behavior you know they did, they weren't the leader of the of the of the boy scout group or the cheerleading group and so they really are being a leader for the first time and so what i'm trying to do is give them some experiences from my life as well as point them to some of the other books as you know each of the chapters has you know two or to three books that i've recommended that will go into the detail even more 
So I'm really trying to help that new that new manager or someone who wants to get into management to just think about, boy, there's a there's a lot going on as a leader that you need to need to uh, consider. Again, the name of the book we're talking about today is Up From the Crowd, Lessons to Help Managers Become Effective Leaders. Bill, I know the the book just came out recently. Where's the best place to go to find it and get your hands on a copy of this book? So it is available through both Amazon and Barnes & Noble in both a hardback and a ebook version. Do you have a website that you have, Bill, where they can find out more about you, more about some of these concepts, uh, maybe even beyond what, what's in the book? Uh, yes, we'll be uh, putting up a website very shortly. The uh, URL will be wlmints.com, and that should be available within a, within a month or so. All right, that sounds great. Again, the name of the book that we've been talking about today, I think a great book, maybe a handbook for any young employer employee wanting to be a manager or a manager looking to move on up the ladder, Up From the Crowd, Lessons to Help Managers Become Effective Leaders by William L. Mintz. Thank you so much for being with us today, Bill. Oh, thank you and happy to be here. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Queen of Us All, and our author, Kevin O'Malley, joins me from the United States and the state of Massachusetts. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Hi, how are you doing, Kevin? Doing well, sir. You have written a book, it's uh, 266 pages, it's your first novel. Your inspiration is a young character named Lily. Tell me the background story. Why did you write this book? Hey, Jay, uh, the background of it is, uh, it's based on my daughter, Lily, who's, um, my motivation for it. Um, she was born with Down syndrome, and she faces, she's faced multiple issues with, uh, remarkable poise. She's been in, uh, multiple, she's had multiple surgeries and stuff like that, and she's always come through like a champ. And, um, also seen how she interacted with some of her friends who have disabilities and other kids who uh, don't. And uh, it's the interaction between both her and her friends um, gave me the idea. And this is a fictional account, or fictional story, 266 pages. Give for my listeners a feel for the storyline. What 
is the storyline about? Storyline is um, this little girl was born with a disability. Um, the nursemaid noticed it first, and um, in this part of the world, this time, that um, if you had a disability, there was a law that they were supposed to turn you into the king's uh, possession, and, and they would have you uh, killed. So the idea behind that was the king had a rule that they didn't want anyone with disabilities alive in the kingdom because it would show a weakness to uh, potential uh, combatants and stuff. Um, and when does the story take place? What is the time frame that this fantasy uh, event or fantasy novel takes place? It's way back, um, fictional time, similar to um, if you ever read J.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, something like that in Middle Earth style time. Was he one of the authors that you personally enjoyed and admired as you were reading, as you were growing up? Yes. Um, I fell in love with The uh, the Hobbit and then uh, the whole Lord of the Rings, Cimarron and all that. And then it got me into uh, like the Dragonlance series and stuff like that. As a first-time author, you, I'm sure, had a target audience in mind. I can see a wide appeal to this particular novel and its style. Did you have a specific audience in mind? Um, I started out with um, adults, but it it morphed into uh, a young adult because of um, just the way I was writing. I I wanted to appeal to someone who may not be um, a good reader, like an avid reader, someone who uh, maybe has a little trouble now and then. I figured this would be a nice, easy book to get them to enjoy reading and uh, grow them that way. Your main character's name is also the same as your daughter, so you have, in this book, um, I guess, written a tribute to her life and her style. Have you incorporated a lot of her characteristics into the main character? Yes, I tried to do that. Um, I also added some of her friends, too, um, that I've noticed, you know, uh, some of the characteristics that are um, they're not quite with my daughter, but with, some, you know, I try to grab a little from each of them. <laughs> right. Well, what was the underlying message that you wanted to really drive home to the reader? The underlying message is more, um, I just want people to realize that if you have a disability, or if someone they know has a disability, they could still reach uh, potential. They have a lot of potential. They could still reach um, goals. And for the average person, I wanted them to realize that um, someone with a disability is just like the rest of us. Uh, Kevin, as you uh, wrote this, you also included other characters. Uh, who is Captain Horton? Captain Horton just, um, um, he was the, uh, the head of the god of the king, and he used to, uh, you know, do things for the king and protect, you know, he was the main guy in charge of the uh, forces. And he ends up getting to know Lily and getting, getting twisted to knowing that Lily was really just a nice little girl and not this 
big evil thing that the king had betrayed her. Is there a scene in here that I think will stand out to the reader? When they're reading this, is this got a lot of action and uh, intense activities in here that will also captivate the reader? Yes, there are some good scenes in here about um, going through the the forest when they meet uh, some animals, trying to uh, attack them, and then there's... um, a major battle that um, is pretty uh, intense. Um, there's a few other little sketches during. Um, they're not as intense, but they are pretty colorful. The monastery scene, what does that include? Monastery scene, uh, there's a few of them. When, when Lily first goes there and starts to learn that she does have these special powers, that they haven't um, noticed in other people, and they try to uh, encourage it. And there's also a good battle scene there that when the king comes after Lily and stuff like that. Have you been able to share your novel with uh, friends, neighbors, relatives? Have you received any feedback from the way you've approached this story? Yes, I've I've, uh, received some good feedback from my friends, uh, relatives, <laughs> and even um, my part of, my daughter is part of the uh, learning program. Yes, Boston. That's for uh, kids with Down syndrome, and they've uh, read it and agreed to uh, put it on the site for uh, siblings of kids that have Down syndrome and even kids with Down syndrome to to read. So I've gotten some pretty good feedback. Fabulous, uh, Kevin. As you uh, as you have completed your book, how long did it take? Uh, going through the writing process and getting this ready for print? It took me a little over four years to write it, and then um, I did it on vacations off and on. Um, But the process to get it cleaned up and ready for print took a good uh, six months. Six months. After uh, I first approached iUniverse, they looked at it and then few rewrites and stuff like that. In a couple of sentences, or maybe even a couple of paragraphs, share with my listeners why they should get their copy of Queen of Us All. Um, I believe they would enjoy the story. It's a good um, new twist on the good versus evil. It does, um, I'm sure it would hit home with a lot of people whether they haven't a person with a disability in their family or they know of someone and someone who just really likes to see uh, a good little story that um, with the good, you know, triumphing over evil. It's always a good theme. It, was there, uh, was there a, um, a place in your, your story that... You weren't anticipating as you began writing it, but all of a sudden it came to you and you decided that would be a great twist on this tale. Did you include anything like that? Um, the final scene, not the final scene, but the scene during the battle, I didn't, in the beginning, I didn't realize how I would have that <laughs> uh, play out. And then uh, it just came to me that with the twist at the end there that I... Uh, to work out really well. 
that you anticip- didn't anticipate. That I didn't ha- anticipate that, yeah, that ha- being finishing that way. And that happens with a lot but, of writers, yes. Yeah. Now, did you... I mean, there's a lot of little twists during it that I was just writing and then something came to me. <laughs> so your writing style is more from inspiration rather than uh, doing a real hard outline and writing in that uh, that manner. Correct. Yes, I... I've tried putting out an outline, but it, I really had trouble following it. <laughs> so I just let the story come to me and uh, write down as I go. The title of your book, Queen of Us All, where did that idea come from and what does it represent? The idea just came to me when I was trying to come up with a name. And um, I wanted to show that um, that this person that anyone could become like the lead character, the lead uh, queen or king, if they just try to stick to the truth and be in uh, the goodness, you know? Right. Uh, did you conscience, consciously try to make this book different from others in the marketplace? A little. I wanted to try to have my own little spin. Um, but I, I did just try to let it come to me, so I wasn't consciously trying to force it in any, any special way. There must have been some challenges in getting this completed. What were those, and how did you overcome them? Challenges were just finding the time and um, space to be able to just sit down and write. Uh, I do have a full-time job. I have a daughter who's nine years old now, and... You know, other I help out with the church a lot, so just trying to find the the time to uh, to write was the big uh, obstacle. Uh, well, what has Lily thought of her name being included in a book that her daddy has written, Queen of Us All? Uh, she seems pretty excited because um, she saw the, the picture of her in the back. <laughs> right. Um, but she's like, yeah, yeah, you know read a little to her, but uh, she's pretty cool when other people see it. She likes it. Wonderful. Well, pass on our regards to uh, to Queen Lily. And uh, to our listeners, the title of this book is Queen of Us All, our author, Kevin O'Malley. Kevin, was this a good enough process that you might have something else on the horizon as far as a follow-up book? I do. I am working on the, the follow-up to it. Um, because at the end I do leave a twist. Um, so I'm hoping to get this done a lot quicker than <laughs> the first book. Um, yes, there definitely will be a follow-up. I even have another book that I've been working on, too. So Fabulous. I'm hoping this, I can get them all done. <laughs> this one titled Queen of Us All. Where do we get copies of, of this book, Kevin? Um, you can get it on um, Mines and Noble or um, Amazon.com. Um, even from iUniverse, they have this store that you can uh, get stuff from. Um, have you uh, started a website yet? Or a fan page? Have you started a website or a fan page yet? I'm in the process of starting a website uh, with the help of iUniverse. Um, they gave me a, what it set up, but it was great, so we're just doing the final details now. Fabulous. Listeners, you can find Kevin online by searching under his name, Kevin O. 
Mally, M-A-L-L-E-Y, or under Queen of Us All. Kevin, thank you for sharing your story and sharing Lily's story as well. Thank you, Jay. My pleasure. pleasure. To talk to you. Look forward to talking with you in the future. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, 1972 Farm Journal, a back-to-the-land movement story, and the author is Oaks Plimpton, and Oaks joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Oaks. Hiya. Great great to have you with us. Uh, This is really uh, taking us back to a time when uh, folks were trying to, I guess, you know, there was a lot of unrest in the in the country, of course, the Vietnam War and a lot of protests of people trying to figure out maybe a better way to uh, live, right? I would, I would say yes. And, and so people, yes, uh, people came protests, together. Yeah. yeah, people came together. Well, yes, I mean, uh, by people, of course, we mean uh, especially college students who were threatened with the draft and um and they they protested against the the uh the war and and against society in general where they came from and um this this was the alternative they were also uh, profoundly anti nuclear um a lot of them got involved with the anti nuclear movement but the other but the other half of the story was that they they formed um, these communal farms near some of the universities where they went to school. Especially this, these these farms were mostly came from Amherst College, where I went to where I went to college. Now I graduated in 1954, so that was a, a long ways from 1969. Most of the people on this farm were from that class. So people were looking, as you put it, back to the land movement. They they were there was a real feeling about helping each other and back to nature. You know, a communal organic farm made a whole lot of sense. It just resonated with people. Yeah, of course, uh, the real farmers out there were using these. The 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 regular farms farmers were all using these total chemical methods. Which, which of course included, among other things, 
DDT. Right. And uh, so it was sort of a it was a revolution against that too. So for a year, 1972, almost every day you kept this journal. What? Why did you feel you needed to do that then? Well, I mean, this was quite a change for me. I had been, uh, I, I had gone to law school, and um, uh, I ended up working in the conservation movement uh, first for the Nature Conservancy when there was uh, seven or eight people in the national office. Now they have that many in Boston, and um, uh, then for the Conservation Law Foundation, and um, I, as, you know, I became sort of disillusioned with the Law Foundation, and I didn't like being a lawyer in the first place, so, so when I inherited some money and, and I read this inspiring article about a new, a new farm, uh, organic farm forming in New York State, where I was from, I... Uh, I started. A, uh, I uh, wrote the the author of the article who who sent my interest of Mark Kramer interest off to um, the 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 farmers. And before you know it, they arrived in Boston, all the way from from uh, near Cortland, New York State, which is in the uh, south of Syracuse. It's uh, really entirely in the boonies. Um, and uh, they said that I couldn't invest in the farm without actually farming. So I kind of agreed to come. And and about two weeks later, somebody somebody called me and they needed a ride. So I, you know, I just uh, took off my tie and set forth with with this uh, woman named Chica, and we drove all the way out to. Um, I I think we actually hitchhiked out there somehow. I don't I don't know what happened to my car. Everybody hitchhiked back then. That's right. And and um, we uh, I spent uh, two weeks out there, you know. And uh, the, the sort of interesting thing was that, in as much as it was the first year of the farm, uh, maybe anyway, uh, they were between crops. And anyway, somehow we spent our hours out there picking blackberries in the woods because. Uh, the blackberry crop was just amazing, but of course it meant you were you were uh, scratched by these blackberries, you know, the thorns. <laughs> and um, then we had other jobs. We we went off and put a roof on somebody's house somewhere, and uh, uh, it was uh, qu- quite an adventure for somebody who was 38 or 39 years old. So there, there was a. They were all twenty four, twenty five, and, and you had but all. They, the... I ha, you have to take total admiration for like this. This one, uh, a farmer, Ira, Ira Karasik, he he's now a lawyer, and and um, uh, but he could take apart a tractor and put it back together again. I mean, he they 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 were ace mechanics, and hmm. it was the uh, and the first um. Farmer George Jacobs, he he was a genius too, and he he had set forth, you know, to Europe. And when he heard Arabian music, he he took a detour to, to Tangiers and Algeria and spent something like a whole year there. I mean, they they were total incredible adventurers. In some ways, uh, 
most would say that era was kind of like the dropout generation, and that often uh-huh. has a very negative, obviously, connotation to it. But at the same time, the dropout generation was just trying to do something new and different and trying to deal with all that was going on in their lives. They were trying to make sense out of everything. Well, I, I think it was also uh, the, the 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 they I mean the whole business of the war and nuclear power was just so um, you know dominant in 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 that uh, dropping out seemed to be the only thing to do and and then here was this alternative lifestyle right uh, yeah right. and. Uh, so you've got this back to the land revolution. These are different elements in your story. You got the political dissent uh, because of Vietnam War, and then you've got the feminist revolution, the sexual revolution. Oh, that's right, and and uh, the, the, yeah, especially and and the the feminist was strong. Uh, we, we had several women out at the farm who who were, of course. They they were at somewhat of a disadvantage. They didn't know anything about farming. Well, one did though, and um, and I I was I, I was uh, I had to teach two women how to drive the tractor, which was uh, rather daunting. We we had a John Deere nineteen thirty eight tractor, which you had to pull uh, in order to get it started. You had to pull this huge wheel, sometimes as long as five minutes or ten minutes. To, to get it started, it only had two <laughs> cylinders, two huge cylinders. It was, it was, it was uh, quite quite an amazing machine. Well, when you go back to the land, there's always uh, reality sets in about growing oh. food and how that you oh. have all the work that it takes to do that. Oh, the re- reality was total, and and f- furthermore. Uh, Towards the end of the summer, some hurricane got stalled over northern Pennsylvania and southern New York State, and it rained for days, uh, which uh, pretty much messed us up. And um, uh, when we came to apply for government loans, we couldn't collect anything because, if you would believe, we were the only corporate farm in in Cortland County, which was kind of ironic to say the least. Uh, The reason for forming a corporation, of course, was so that you could change ownership uh, you know, easily you had you had shareholders because otherwise, you know, to to change ownership in real estate is a difficult business. Well, so uh, somebody's uncle formed this as a corporation. <laughs> well, forward uh, thinking, I'm sure uh, you had at the beginning of your life you were very focused on law, and then after this experience, I'm looking at your resume here, and it was yeah. all about food after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Um, I mean, I was I, I was into uh, gardening as a child because because I grew up during the Second World War, and we all had a victory garden, uh, and uh, it's kind of uh, odd that war brings on interest in, in gardening, uh, and uh, so um, yeah. Uh, so, so that uh, there seemed to be a certain symmetry to it, you know, to return to return to the land, and uh, it's. Um, so, what would you say? What will we learn most from your book? What will be the one thing or two things that really stands out to the reader? Well, I, I when you read, I'm just, I was just reading it now. I mean, the 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 story of 
of some of these people's stories was just remarkable. Right there is 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 uh, kind of total interest, and and the the whole uh, nuts and bolts of of living together and and the relationship with all the local people out there was was uh, uh, kind of amazing. I mean, a couple of these people. There's this man called Popeye and another. What's the other guy's name? They they kind of adopted us and they were there all the time, bringing us beer and advice. Of course, they they didn't go swimming with no clothes on in the river like we did, but uh, with us. But um, all the same, it was. Uh, and there was something uh, uh, exhilarating about you know, I'm out there plowing a field with in a tractor with with uh no clothes on i mean i don't know <laughs> uh and and uh nobody to see me either for that matter uh we were up on top of a hill uh you know and we're talking a farm of some 300 acres although i suppose we might have farmed maybe 20 acres i'm i'm a little unsure there was a nice woods where we where we and one day we all went out there in the middle of winter and and uh uh cut this tree this huge cherry tree down and this and this man from another farm made made uh guitars out of this tree really amazing mm. and and uh when i first year that i came i i then again came in december and it was really like sort of a scene of the manger up there in the barn with a cow and chickens and the, and the and pig and they were all snuggled together in the cold <laughs> I I uh and and um you know we went out and picked corn which was sort of half frozen to feed to the pigs and 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 the horse it was a horse So um but in the end uh you know one day Ira got out his uh calculator and pretty much figured out that we that we were not going to succeed <laughs> So everybody went back to the old ways you know Ira went to law school uh uh some of the other people one woman uh studied nursing and became a nurse uh another one uh went to um but this one man Jarleth stayed out there and he he then got involved with the American agriculture movement and um and in a way uh was important in the whole whole beginning of the organic movement by by getting Congress to appropriate some money to, through the uh, agriculture department to uh, do research on organic agriculture well it looks like it's it, yeah. it, it, why it's so fascinating is that this really happened and it just shows you the i guess the the will you know and when you have a will to do something uh, even though it didn't work out you know obviously uh, as you said it, it people had to go their own ways but it really changed everybody's life well i i think so and uh you know uh i i myself am still involved of course i i have the privilege of not having to work for a living really uh so i i'm now involved in um first i got involved with a, a, a managing a farmers market and then i i uh Got involved with, uh, you know, sort of a community farm. That is to say, a nonprofit farm on fallow land at the old agricultural research station in Waltham. And then, and then uh, after that, I called up some farmers to see if they had extra crops in the fields, you know, uh, which they were not marketing for 
one reason or another, you know, either the, either the, uh, they couldn't sell it or it was too old or it was frostbitten. And this farmer told me he had four rows of beets that were too big. And I took, I had somebody who was kind of working with me, a, a Greek woman named Marina, and we went out and picked the beets. And the and the Russians coming to the food pantry in in Porter Square, Cambridge, thought they were they were terrific. <laughs> <laughs> so so we started this outfit called Boston Area Gleaners, hmm. or, or Boston Area Farm Greening right. uh, Project, and. Um, it's been very successful. Well, real quick, real quick. Oh, oh sorry, right. This is <laughs> real quick, I yeah. uh, want you to just give us a, a little about another journal you kept back in 1957 before we close out our discussion here. So tell us about this 57 journal. Well, um, uh, when I got out of the Army in 1957, it was too late to go to graduate school, so I called up the Museum of Natural History and asked them if, 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 if I could be an assistant on an expedition. They said no, but about a, a, a three weeks later, they called me up and said, would you be interested in going to Baja, California to, to collect marine life, uh, fossils, mammals, and reptiles in the Baja, California, and in the Sea of Cortez, or the Gulf of California? And naturally, I... I jumped up and down and said yes, and I kept the journal then too. And 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 about seven or eight years ago, I found my journal up in the attic, along with the slides I'd taken. And 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 uh, and then that very summer, uh, my uh, my sister's classmate, as a daughter of Gordon Wasson, who was going to Mexico, needed an, a help, an assistant for for a, a trip to. Uh, to look for uh, a search for the sacred mushroom, hallucinatory mushroom in in Oaxaca, um, town called Huautla, and uh, we uh, we got to go to all these towns that where only half the town would speak Spanish, native languages. This one with five tones, Mazatec, and and partake of the of the of the hallucinatory mushroom, which is an amazing experience. And then we, um, you know, uh, and no roads to these towns. You had to get there by Piper Cub and by foot. And uh, so that was the second half. So these two journals I, I typed up, and it's called um, uh, 1957 Expeditions Journal, published by our universe just uh, last year. Well, fantastic, Oaks. Uh, tell us how to get your book we've been discussing in, in, in detail, the 1972 Farm Journal. Uh, how do we get that book? Well, I, I think you uh, the best thing to do is, is simply to, uh, you can get it through iUniverse uh, Press. You, you uh, Google iUniverse and, and the, the name of the book, 1972 Farm Journal, or my name, Oaks Plumpton, and uh, you, will, you will find access to it either uh, ebook, which is which is quite inexpensive, like uh, four, three or four dollars, or or the book itself, which is twelve or thirteen dollars. The same with the 1957 journal. Uh, the the nice thing about the 1972 Farm Journal, by the way, it has that I collected everybody else's story too, so it's not just my journal. Well, very good, Oaks. We appreciate you joining us. Very fascinating. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. All right. Thank you in return. You're welcome. 
iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.